Good morning, everyone. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, uh, transform our hearts and minds, may we grow closer to you and be more effective in sharing this life-changing message with others in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly, God's Mission, My Mission, and the title is Mission to the Powerful. Mission to the Powerful. And the lesson points out that God loves the rich and powerful just as much as he loves the poor and powerless, and this is absolutely true. But if you think about ministry to the rich and powerful, do you think that they have, there, there are some obstacles to reaching the powerful that the powerless don't have? Can you think of any obstacles that make it harder to witness to the powerful, the rich and powerful, that, that are not in the way of the, of the powerless? Depends on their riches. Yeah. They don't need anything. They're yeah. very self-centered. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, so the, so, so, yes. Yeah, so, this idea that um, that the rich might not have a great awareness of the need because their wealth, their power, their position could cause them to believe that things are going well for them. If they have their health. If they have their health too. Oftentimes, health problems will then cause a rich and powerful person to look to more serious things. But as long as they're healthy, then oftentimes that this can be a barrier. I don't have a need. I'm rich and healthy and wealthy and, and have, what's it say in, in the church that led and have need for nothing in, in the Laodicean description of the spiritually. And peer pressure, peer pressure, their own peer pressure. Peer pressure from other peers who might think less of them, might lose uh, opportunities for business or things like that. Okay, Sure. How about can the rich and powerful be pursued by people wanting something from them, always with a handout, including from church organizations, and thus they don't necessarily view somebody coming with the gospel as interested in them to help them. They view people as wanting to take from them, whereas maybe the, the poor don't have people pounding at their door to get something from them as much. And therefore... Because of that, the rich and powerful will put up barriers. Security-gated communities, security staff, other staff that intercept their phone calls and emails, so it's harder to get to them because they're screening everything than, than the powerless. And can the rich and powerful have more life distractions from whatever the real-life problems are, such as travel, entertainments, um, new and worldly exciting adventures, launching a rocket into space, you know. <laughs> new and powerful, uh, exciting things that can distract from maybe the more eternal things. On Sunday's lesson, asks us uh, to read Daniel chapter 4, which is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar about a great tree that is cut down. The dream prophesied of uh, coming seven years in which Nebuchadnezzar would be in a psychotic state living among the animals, and when he acknowledges God, the God of heaven, that his sanity would be restored to him and his kingdom would be restored to him. That's quite amazing if you think about it. Even though his sanity is restored, you can imagine today some person of significant power becoming insane for seven years and living in the fields with animals that when they get their sanity back, that there is all their powers waiting for them to reclaim. Nobody's stepped in and taken it and, and, and you know, 
put them in an institution as insane, and, and even if they get their sanity back, they're still labeled because they paid the doctors to make sure that they're still insane. And it's quite an astounding thing that he not only gets his sanity, but his power and position back. And all of this came to pass, and Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledges the God of heaven. And in the second paragraph of the lesson, it says the following. A striking example in the Bible of how God reaches powerful unbelievers is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. God's judgment was executed on him in a way similar to some Israelite kings. The biblical account of Nebuchadnezzar, who came to his senses and acknowledged the creator God, shows that God cares about the wealthy and powerful as well as the weak and the needy. In verse 37, the most powerful man on earth declared, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. If only all the rich and powerful and haughty among us, mortal beings, understood this truth. Are there lessons in this story for us? Yes. Several lessons. And we'll start with the uh, lesson's first point in their paragraph. The lesson's first point is God's judgment was executed on Nebuchadnezzar in a similar manner to some of the Israelite kings. When you hear that language... What pops into your mind? God's judgment was executed. And does the same thing pop into your mind today that did 10 or 15 years ago when you hear that language? No. There's things changing in your mind as you hear that. What's a common way that it, you might even hear it evidenced in certain religious circles? God's judgments are punishments. He was haughty. He was arrogant. God had already shown him in, in the and the health and the wisdom of the worthies in Daniel 1. He'd already shown them with the fiery furnace in Daniel 2. Uh, And now here we are, he's still arrogant and and haughty, so God punished him. This is a common presentation. And and here we, and and God, God judged him. Judged him as sinful and arrogant and prideful like Lucifer and punished him for it. That's one way to hear judgment. Inflicted punishment. Is that how you hear it? Or is there another way to hear it? God was trying to save him. Therapeutic. God was trying to save him. And the authors, I think, rightly connect the idea that God judged him like he did several Israelite kings in the past. I think they rightly connect that. And out of the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 587, read the following. See what you think about this description of judgment and and Try to define what this type of judgment is as this author describes this. How great is the long-suffering of God toward the wicked. The idolatrous Philistines and backsliding Israel had alike enjoined, enjoyed the gifts of his providence. 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling in the pathway of ungrateful, rebellious men. Every blessing spoke to them of the giver, but they were indifferent of his love. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men. But when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, he removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works and in the warnings, counsels, and reproofs of his word, and thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. What do you understand this judgments to be here? Judgments. Do parents ever speak to their children through judgments? Yes. Uh-huh. 
Because you're setting up a judicial system that must be enforced? No. Or are you judging the circumstances, the dangers to your child, the impact of undisciplined behaviors that will have on their character and development, and you judge that an intervention is necessary to help redeem or teach the child to not continue down paths of self-injury? Because you're trying to... Set them right. And plus teach them. So this is what the difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment comes from the root word punitive. It means to exact vengeance upon. Discipline comes from the root word disciple. It means to teach. God disciplines those he loves. He doesn't punish. And judgments are he judges the circumstances, the position, the, the issues, the problems, the diagnosis. The di- when a doctor makes a diagnosis, he's making a judgment of what's wrong. And then after the diagnosis, the doctor assesses what's necessary, the therapeutic intervention, to make the judgment about the best treatment. What's the best thing to do in this circumstance to help restore one to health? This is a different way to understand judgment. You have to decide. Do we understand judgments as a, you broke the rules and the law requires, and therefore I must inflict in a very penal legal way, or do you understand it in a design way, healing, restorative way. And that goes back to how you understand God's law functions. It determines how you even understand the words that you read in these descriptions. But God didn't just withdraw himself from Nebuchadnezzar. He inflicted him with something. Therapeutic intervention. Putting somebody in a cast. Putting a pin in a broken bone. We're intervening. We're not just withdrawing and leaving them. We're doing something to help. Yes. Did God actually inflict the insanity, or did he just give Nebuchadnezzar over to his darkened and futile thinking and rejection of of truth and the belief of a lie? Well, the story unfolds where the watchers in heaven were looking down and came to God with a suggestion to inflict this insanity upon him as a, it doesn't say the definition, but to inflict it on him, you have to interpret as a punishment as a consequence, as a therapeutic intervention. Uh, we, we, we're not told the watcher's motivations and what they thought would happen. But are we to believe that God needed to be told from the watchers what was going on? Not at all. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not, we don't mean that he needed to be told, no. But we do, we do believe that God, um, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, this world is a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. Uh, Job chapter 1, uh, this, this controversy uh, at the cross, first, uh, first chapter of Colossians, verse 18, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. So we do believe that God is not working only to save human beings, but he's working out the plan in such a way that he resolves the conflict in the minds of the loyal angels who still had questions yet unanswered. Okay, And so there's a dialogue, no doubt, going on with the heavenly intelligences. You can see, I think, first chapter of Job really kind of shows that process going on quite well and how Job was drawn into that. And I think this is the same thing we're seeing here with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is drawn into um, events that have cosmic consequence, not just earthly consequence, and we get a little backstory on it here. So I don't think God needed that at all. I think God desired his intelligences in heaven to be thinking, what can we do to help? What can we do to, to bless? What, using their ingenuity, or their brain power, so to speak, to understand the issues involved and think what interventions could be, be helpful in this circumstance. And they went to God 
And God, in my view, concluded this would be reasonable, this would be helpful, knowing the end from the beginning, seeing what the outcome would be, okay? Had it not been helpful, God would have uh, directed a different direction. The quote that you had up there said he removed his protective hand. That was over Israel through, through, through time, the captivity to Babylon to be an example. Of the poisonous snakes in the wilderness. Exactly. So I think there are times when he's just removing his protective hand and there's always an enemy waiting to sweep in. And That's true. That's what happened in the book of Job. Yeah. He removed a protective hand, the, the, the scorpions and snakes, the actual Babylonian captivity. Now, if you read that, um, there's places where it's described as he's removing his protective hand, his wrath, I will let you go. But then he also describes in Jeremiah, I will send my servant Nebuchadnezzar. I, w- I will send my servant Nebuchadnezzar, an active description of what he's going to do. And so, so did he actually get inside Nebuchadnezzar's head and take control of Nebuchadnezzar's decision-making and, and make Nebuchadnezzar uh, send his armies to invade? Was he a puppet at that point? Yes. I see the great physician being trailed by some short coats and long coats and, and saying, you guys figure this one out. Exactly. I'll let you do this. That, exa- well said. And so that's what's going on. So we're look back to this question of judgment. God made a judgment. The watchers made a judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, with all you've already shown him, he's becoming arrogant and prideful. We saw what that did to Lucifer. Nebuchadnezzar isn't yet hardened. He could be redeemed. How do, we, how do we redeem him? Take away what he prides in the most. And it really wasn't his wealth, if you read what he said. It was, haven't I done all of this? Take away his abilities. Make him eat grass. Now, and I don't mean force him. Take away his abilities for cogent thinking. And then what happens, he comes to a census, and it's all restored to him. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But this, this begs the question of the various types of judgment in Scripture. And I think it's worth a review. When you hear the word judgment, do you immediately think there's at least four types of judgment? There's four types of judgment. Technically five if we use the earthly form of Pilate judging Jesus, but, but there's four. The first judgment in Scripture, used in Scripture. In Eden... When the serpent confronted Adam and Eve at the garden, did God really say blah, 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 blah? Did Adam and Eve at that point have to make a judgment? Did they have to weigh the issues and did they have to judge? Is God really loyal, faithful, true, reliable, and trustworthy? Or is what the serpent's saying true and therefore God can't be trusted? Didn't they have to make a judgment on that call? And they made a judgment call. I can't trust God. I believe the lie. God's not trustworthy. I doubt they actually went through all of that. Of course they didn't go through that. No, this is the point. This is what deception does. Deception caused you to make these judgments on false pretense, but they still made the judgment. They, they chose to break trust with God. Okay, that's what they did. They didn't believe God anymore. Okay, so the first judgment is our judgment of God. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 3. Verse 4, where he says, Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. This is the same judgment that Elijah called the people to at Mount Carmel. If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. Make a judgment, folks. Decide in your mind who you understand God to be. Judge him. This is the first of the three angels' message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his 
judgment has come. The hour in human history for the people of earth to finally judge God as he really is and stop judging him to be an imperial Roman dictator, rule maker, enforcer, inflictor of pain, suffering, and death that, the, that, that Satan has alleged him to be. This is the message that is like the word. God is not like Satan alleges. God is like this. The hour of his judgment has come. And instead, many Christians who value that particular passage have spun it exactly into Satan's lie and said the hour in which God is going to judge you has come, in which he's going to stand over you and inflict punishments over you, which makes you judge God in the same false light that Satan has been saying all along. This is the hour. This is the first judgment, our judgment of God. Second judgment are what we were just talking about. These are God's therapeutic judgments, judging what's actually wrong with us and judging what is the best therapeutic option to fix the sin problem. And these are the judgments through the scriptures. This is the judgment at the time of Noah. This was not a punishment for sin. This was what was necessary to ensure the promise of Genesis 3.15, a Messiah that could save the world, would be realized. Because without that intervention, there was only one righteous man left on the earth, only one. The whole rest of the world has hardened themselves. God can't work with them. They're settled and sealed into rebellion. Only one righteous man. And that avenue for Messiah had narrowed down to him and his family. And if God doesn't act, Satan wins the day by destroying the last member of the human family through whom God can bring Messiah. And so God's judgment was not punishment for sin. It was therapeutic in order to save the world. And you find this all through the whole Testament. Therapeutic judgments, diagnosis and interventions. And this is the judgment of the Adventist sanctuary message, a therapeutic judgment. You read about it in Malachi, Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can adore the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What do, what do, what do refiner's fires and launderer's soaps do? They cleanse. Notice. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levite. He will purify the record books in heaven of all the historical bad deeds people have done. So what it says, he will purify the Levites. That's the priesthood of believers in the New Testament. Those who wear the white robes, the robe robe of righteousness of Christ, all who've been converted with new hearts and raised. He purifies the Levites, the believers, the Christians, and refines them like gold and silver. We're being cleansed and refined. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and offerings of the, and the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by as in former years. So I will come near you for judgment. The investigative judgment is a therapeutic investigation of what's wrong in the hearts and minds of God's Levites, his faithful followers who are wearing the white robes for the purpose of eradicating and burning out of our hearts all resi- residual rebelliousness and untrusting of him. We, he's restoring us to faithful love and trust in him. That is the cleansing, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the spirit temple where he abides by his spirit. And that's the message that goes forward, preparing a people to be at one with him. If you'd like to meet, read more details, we have two different magazines They're out here and you can order them online. One, which is written with references from the historical Adventist documents for for Adventists who like the Adventist record. Um, It goes to the 1844, Daniel 814, that kind of thing. It's Heavenly Sanctuary and the Investigative Judgment for the Modern World. 
But if you have non-Adventist friends who you'd like to share this message with and not refer to the historical documents and share the truth about God's preparing his people to meet him so that when he comes, we shall see him face to face for we shall be like him, as scripture says. Okay, then we have another one that teaches it. It's called the wedding of Christ to his bride, preparing the church for the second coming. And it teaches the same truth from a completely different line of scripture because God teaches this truth through several different lines of scripture. And it's God cleansing his church or cleansing his people, preparing his bride or purifying her to meet him. And it's the same, same truth as this one. This one, however, within the Adventist circle has been completely corrupted after 1888 with a penal legal system of law enforcement. And this, sets, this document here, though, is set right by restoring us to worship him who made the heavens and the earth and seeing his law as design law, and you'll see what the actual true meaning of those, those historic references are. <clears throat> so first, judgment, our judgment of God. Second, judgment, God's therapeutic diagnoses of the sin problem and intervening to he- bring Messiah and heal us. The third judgment in Scripture is in Revelation 24 through 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word and so forth and so on. This is the judgment that the righteous render during the thousand years. That the saved who've trusted God, who've accepted Jesus, who've been restored, who've been cleansed in their heart, who go to heaven but still have questions unanswered. This is the, the mother who, who, before she died, saw her son give his heart to the Lord, and then in heaven, he's not there. Ooh. I have questions. Why is he not here? And this is the investigation of all the evidence as to why he's not here, and vice versa. And during the thousand years, we will actually come to judgments about not just the the answering the questions about who's here and not here, but God's involvement. And was there anything more God could have done? And you will see all the interventions God had done for every person that you have interest in. But it's not just the saints uh, judging the humans that aren't there. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.3, he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? We will also review the history of Lucifer and his angelic friends who fell into rebellion before the creation of earth. What happened back in eternity past? We will get to review the actual historical realities. Uh, It won't be books we'll be reading. We'll probably have some immersive uh, three-dimensional video recording of some some kind that we get to step into and and observe in reality. Uh, However, God has recorded these events. But we will get to observe in real time and we will get to see Christ and the Father working in real time to, to prevent this rebellion. And you will see that, that there was nothing left in heaven at God's resource that, uh, to, to, to redeem or save Lucifer that was not utilized. And at the end of the day, this judgment results in our ability to stand on the walls of the New Jerusalem as the wicked are ultimately lost, including the, the, the angels, and die eternally. And go up to Jesus and put our arms around him and say, it's okay. There's nothing more you could have done. That we realize that all the lost, angelic or human, not one is lost because of a deficiency on God's part or a cause from God's part. That every single lost individual is lost by their own willful, intentional choice to be lost, not from God. 
And then the fourth and final judgment is the judgment that occurs at the end of the thousand years. It's often called the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11, and 12. I saw a great white throne on him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Well, certainly now we finally got to the legal judgment, right? The penal judgment. We got books. We got judgment. And they're being judged about the deeds that are recorded there. This must be a judicial judgment like humans have, right? This is how it's presented. It's not true. According to Scripture, if you allow Scripture to tell you and you look at what's in the books, there's something the Scripture specifically says is recorded in the books. The names. The names are recorded in the books. And you can look that up in Philippians 4, 3, Revelation 3, 5, 13, 8, 17, 8, 20, 15, 21, 27. Multiple places in the books, the names of the people are recorded there. And in Scripture, names are symbolic representative of? Character. character. Of character. And thus, what's actually recorded in the books is our unique individualities or characters that we have formed by our choice either to believe the truth about God open our hearts and trust him and then choose to follow where he leads and thus we form and receive and form and act out and live out Christ-like character or by believing the lies about God, worshiping a false representation of God and becoming like that false God and solidifying ourselves in rebellion against God. And so we're judged by the reality of who we are. So you should conceive of the heavenly record books as medical records. And what's in a medical record? If it's an accurate record, and God's records will be accurate, the condition of the patient. And so if you have a patient with cancer, the medical record will show the pathology, the disease, the extent of the damage. And if you have a remedy that's been provided and the cancer goes into remission, you will have the record of how devastating the cancer was. You will see the application of the remedy, and you will see the cancer's in remission, and they're cancer-free now. It's all in the record because it's in them. And so if you want something to change in your heavenly record... The only way you get something to change in your heavenly record is for it to change in you. That's the only way. And the penal legal model cheats people of this because the penal legal model cheats that you claim the blood of Jesus and he goes into heaven and he opens the record books and he begins erasing the historical bad stuff you've done, applying his blood, having paid the price, paid, 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 forgiven, 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 forgiven. And the changes are happening in books. And you will then be declared to be righteous because the perfect righteousness of Christ is is put in your record while you, of course, remain unrighteous. And this is how Adventism has fraudulently taught the investigative judgment that Jesus is in heaven cleansing books. Let me give you a metaphor for that. You have a child who is dying of cancer. All the doctors you know say that it's terminal, it's metastatic, there's nothing they can do. But you hear of a doctor out west, maybe at Loma Linda, who everybody who goes to this doctor leaves with a clean bill of health. You're excited, you make an appointment, you fly out, you bring your child, you bring the records that show the extent of the disease, the path reports, the MRIs, the biopsies. You've got the extent showing it. And you hand it to the doctor and the doctor opens the record pulls out all the record of pathology, sticks in blank white sheets of paper, hands it back and say, here, no more record of disease. You going home. Are you happy? No. That's historical Adventist investigative judgment. Cleansing records while people remain terminal and dying. It's a fraud. 
the true message is and how the records get cleansed. You go to the doctor and the doctor sees the extent of record and then gets up and goes over to your child, examines your child, and then intervenes in your child with a remedy that puts the cancer into remission. And the record stands of all how bad it has been, but the record will now also show a remedy has been applied and the record will now show there's no cancer because there's no cancer in the child. That's how you get your record cleansed. It's reality, folks. This other thing is fantasy. It's based on the fantasy that God's law works like human law and it's legal adjustment in books, paying penalties to the magistrate so he won't have to kill you. It's never been that. And it all comes down to how do you understand God's law? It changes everything. And so back to this final judgment, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33 37, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Your character, what you bring up, okay? You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man speaks the good stored up in him and the evil man speaks the evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned because it's an overflow of the heart. And it's not just evil and good. The artist brings forth art out of the art sort of them. The mathematician brings forth math. The musician brings forth music. We bring forth in our lives what we cherish in our hearts. That's reality. And if you haven't been reborn to Jesus Christ to cherish him, his principles in your life, you may be very religious and keep lots of rules based on fear, based on um, uh, the, the insecurity of, a, of the hereafter, based on a legal claim. And you will be willing to use those same methods to ensure other people conform their behavior because we must save lives. So another lesson, we're still talking about Nebuchadnezzar, is the contrast. So we, we dealt with this question of judgment and God's judgment. God made a judgment therapeutically, intervened therapeutically, and it resulted in a redemptive experience for Nebuchadnezzar. But let's contrast Nebuchadnezzar's response after the seven years of insanity with his response after the three worthies being saved in the fiery furnace. And I'm going to read you his responses. The first is Daniel 3, 28 to 29, and then I'll read you the response out of Daniel 4. And we're going to contrast them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. And then we look at Daniel 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the, for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Mm. Do you see any similarities? 
Let's look similarities between two events. I only read his responses, so you have to know the stories. But if you know the stories, were there any similarities in the two stories and, and events that Nebuchadnezzar went through? In both, God provided a dream of the future. The first was a dream of a multi-metal man. The second was a dream of a tree being cut down. But God provided a dream of future events to the king before the events happened. In both, God intervened with a miracle. The miracle of protecting the three worthies of the fiery furnace. And the second, the miracle of lost and restored sanity. And in both, the king acknowledges the God of heaven. Does he not acknowledge God in both? Yes. So God's actions are quite similar in both. Were Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgments quite similar in both? No. Or are there key difference, difference or differences in the second acknowledgement that, that were no longer there from the first? Yeah. In the first situation, the king responds with acknowledgement of power with imperialism, with might, with coercion. He acknowledges the God of heaven as a powerful being, but not as a righteous being. And thus Nebuchadnezzar promotes falsehoods about God by creating a religious edict under the threat of punishment, external inflicted punishment. The human system imposed law. In the second experience, Nebuchadnezzar also acknowledged God as the powerful God of heaven, but now he also acknowledges God as righteous, as a being worthy of trust and does not impose laws to force others to worship, but instead gives his testimony presenting the truth but leaving others free to decide for themselves. Monday's lesson is about Naaman. I just want you to notice that distinction. But let's talk about Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the armies of Aram who had leprosy and whose slave girl was a Jewish girl who told him about Elisha. And he went to Elisha and Elisha, of course, told him to bathe seven times in the Jordan. And he didn't want to bathe seven times in the Jordan. There's better rivers back home. But his advisors told him to, what's he have to lose? Give it a shot. And so he does and he's healed. And he afterwards becomes a true worshiper and follower of Yahweh. But he has two little requests, two little indulgences that he would like to be indulged upon. And he goes to Elisha and asks for them. And you can, we're going to read the two paragraphs in the lesson that describe this. In 2 Kings 5, 17 to 19, Naaman made two unusual requests after God healed him of leprosy. First, he asked to take two mule loads of earth from Israel back to Syria for the purpose of worshiping the living God. He states, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Though Naaman is clearly now a believer in the only true God, his first request shows that pagan influences still held sway over his thinking to a degree. The Syrian commander regarded the God of Israel as a divinity who must be venerated on soil native to that land. Although Naaman acknowledged the reality that there were no God aside from the Lord of Israel, he did not wholly dispossess himself uh, of the notion that God was by some particular means connected to the land of Israel. Thus, it, in his own country, he desired to worship God on Israelite soil. Naaman's second position shows the sincerity of his faith. While he resolved to serve only the God of heaven, he realized carrying out such a resolution in his own idol idolatrous country would, wouldn't be easy. Moreover, the king of Syria still worshipped the god Rimmon. And in this in his occupation, Naaman uh, would serve as the king's escort. While Naaman had no intention of forsaking his duties to his earthly king, he did not wish to be deemed as bowing uh, in worship to Rimmon. Having surrendered his heart to 
Jehovah, Naaman desired not to make any concessions to idolatry by worshiping the heathen god, nor did he want word to get back to Elisha that he was doing so, because it didn't quite say it. He would go in with the king and bow down or kneel down with the king in front of the god Rimmon. Don't hold this against me when I do it. My heart is not in it. I'm just going along with the king to support him and his worship. That was basically the idea. What do you think of, uh, of Naaman, his conversion, and his two unusual requests? Was it necessary to take soil back to worship? No. no. Why does Naaman do it? We don't know. Well, we ultimately don't know. So what's the likely reason he needed some soil? Because he thinks of gods as being gods of the land where they're worshipped at. Yeah, so, it's, so there was this belief that there were local gods. Right. And they, they, have, they have territorial authority, and he wanted to take some of that territory back to, to bring some of the authority of Yahweh to his homeland. And so he's, it's, we would call this today, what kind of thinking? Superstitious thinking. Mm-hmm. There's something magical happening in the dirt or soil, and, and, and somehow you need that in order to connect yourself with God. Are there any examples of superstitious thinking in Christianity? Eating food off of idols. Okay, in, in Romans chapter 14, they were fearful of eating foods that had been offered to idols, lest the idol have some power over them. And Paul said, if your faith is great, you know the idol is nothing but stone and wood, and it can't affect the nutritional quality of the food. But if your faith is weak, like maybe Naaman's, and you think that if you eat the food offered to the idol, then it has power over you, don't eat the food, because the problem isn't the food, it's the, the belief that you hold now that somehow the idol has power, that will get into your head and, and mess with you. So don't, don't, don't put it there. So that would be a superstitious thinking. How about veneration of relics? You know what veneration of relics are? Nope. We have a piece of wood. This little splinter was part of the cross. And if, and, and, and if you have this little piece of wood, it actually will give special blessings to you and, and so forth. Or we have a shroud that has the blood of Jesus on it. And it's holy, and, if you, and it can heal people. If you touch that, you can have healings from touching these, these relics and so forth. Or we have a bone from, from Saint so-and-so or Apostle so-and-so. And these are holy items, and these holy items have special, somehow, magical powers that can, that can connote either more holiness or blessings of some kind. This is superstitious thinking. What about pilgrimages? Hey, the veneration of dirt in uh, the Middle East. Yeah, the idea that, there you go, the idea that you have to go to a certain place in order to receive a blessing not obtainable without going to that place. Is that superstitious thinking today? Mm Mm-hmm. What about magical thinking regarding Christian ceremonies, like communion? Can superstitious ideas be attached to a communion? Like when you take the wafer, as it makes its way to your stomach, it becomes the literal flesh of Jesus. That, nobody would ever believe that, would they? The Catholics believe that. He says the Catholics believe that. Yes, I know. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. But why do they believe that? Because in the Middle Ages, some monk was riding on his donkey reading the New, scripture, New, New Testament for six, five, six hundred years. No Catholic believed that. But then some monk's riding along and he's reading in the New Testament. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And he concluded, well, Jesus wouldn't lie. And if Jesus said his body, it must actually be his literal body. Uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. So he must be talking. So it has to turn into literal. So this is a person who, cognitively speaking, neurobiologically, could not do what we call abstract. 
He was a literal concrete thinker who couldn't actually see past the symbols and metaphors to their true reality. And so he took it very literally. He'd be like, sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. Jennings is eating amphibians. Okay. Yeah. This is like what people alleging. So, and this is what happened. And sadly, from his writing, he wrote a paper on this and started distributing it through the church. And sadly, billions have believed this based on one man's concrete interpretation of a metaphor. Okay. It's superstitious. What? Jews kind of had the same kind of idea back in Jesus' time when he talked about drinking my blood, eating. They took it very literally too. Yeah. Yes, and exactly. And turned away because of that. John 6, that's right. Yeah. Certain types of, how about certain types of dress have religious value? Yes. Some people feel that if you take some evil thing, like a, like a coin that's been, you know, whatever to the devil, that if you keep that in your house, it's a portal for for us to enter. What do you think of that kind of a concept? Or how about putting a key in Daniel 7? Anybody else? I'm the only one that heard that? I've heard it. A key in Daniel 7 of your Bible. This was a big superstitious thing back in the 70s going through the Adventist high schools. Remember that? I've never heard that. Okay. It's superstition. There's no, there's no power in any of these items. There's power, just the same thing of Romans 7. The power is in the belief it can get into your head. And if you get the belief in your head, then it incites fear. And if you get fear, then you open the door to, to all types of superstitious behaviors and or opportunities for more fear to take root. Yes, that's, it's really just the same thing as, as Romans 14. Yes. Back to communion. What, I didn't quite understand that. Are you saying... That, which you're probably not, that <laughs> Jesus said to do this in remembrance. Of right. Me. So what... So can it be done superstitiously? Like it's some magic. If you take that wafer, you get some, it turns into the real, you're actually, as it passes down through your gullet, down into your esophagus, it turns into actual Jesus bodily human flesh before it hits your stomach. So you become a cannibal. You become a cannibal, exactly. <laughs> do we believe that to be true? No. Some people do. That would be superstitious. How about this? that after we've used the cumin bread, it's somehow got a state of, of holiness in such a way that other bread doesn't have, and therefore it would be inappropriate to donate it unused portions to a food shelter or, 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 or a, a needy shelter for, to feed people. We must burn it because it's now holy. Yeah. <laughs> or the juice. Why are, you, why, why are you laughing? I remember this happening yeah. in their church. Yes, it did happen in the church. Communion bread, and their grandmother made it, and they put it in for leftovers, and uh-uh, uh-uh, you couldn't have it. It's been blessed. This was poured down the... I'm going to tell you, my view of the communion ceremony, it was Jesus never set up a ceremony. If you read the New Testament, whenever you break bread, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you break the unleavened bread. In the Middle East, most of the bread is unleavened. And still today, if you eat in the Middle East, they have unleavened bread. Okay. And when you eat the unleavened bread, leavened with that bread without yeast, the yeast is symbolic of sin, then when you break that bread, remember me. Not four times a year, every 13 weeks, remember me. Every single meal that you break unleavened bread, remember me. This is what he was really saying. And every time you take the, the fruit of the, the grape at your meal, remember my blood shed for you. This is a daily remembrance. How, how often are we supposed to eat and drink? daily. And Jesus wants to remember daily that we are connected to him. But we have turned it into a magical ceremony that something magical happens four times a year. Yes. Yeah, this silliness is still going on a mile from here. During COVID, one of the local churches decided to use prepackaged 
uh, wafers and juice, and it, it split the church because well, well no no we we need people to service because if we go get it ourselves it, it doesn't have the same symbology and it it doesn't work as well yep yep the elders have to bless it the elders have to break it somebody has to serve it to you and without that the magic is gone to be with the white tablecloth we have to have the 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 the, the, the proper sources and sorcerers um, bless it before we can open the door to the devil and you can become demonically possessed oh, okay that's awful yes and do we believe as Christians we have to go to certain geographical locations to worship God, perhaps a denominational building of some sort? If we go instead to uh, someone's home to worship God, is it just as legitimate, or do we have to go to one that is owned by a not-for-profit? Well, that's, how, that's how the church started, was in, in church homes. Yes, it did. The early acts, in, in, the, in Acts, all the churches were in homes, in Acts, in the New Testament. Does that mean there's no righteous place for these ceremonies, no healthy, no legitimate application for them? Just because they can be done superstitiously, does that mean there's no actual virtue? Of course there's virtue in them. If you understand the meaning, and you find this in all the Old Testament symbols, and you read Isaiah, read Amos, and, and God berates them for their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, their trampling of his courts, Isaiah chapter one. Who asked you to bring these meaningless offerings. That's the key. If you do it and understand the meaning behind it, then there's value because they're only valuable to the degree they touch your heart and mind and connect you to reality. And so they can be very good learning tools. Do we, with our children, ever have little things they play with in the sandbox to teach them bigger realities? This is what God is doing. He's given us various ceremonies to teach us something, but metaphors like this, Analogies, symbols, are only metaphors, analogies, and symbols if they connect to reality, and the idea is to move past the symbol to the reality. If we never connect them to reality, it's fantasy. And this is what we try to do at Come and Reason, is remove the metaphorical understanding and understand the reality behind it. Here's another classic one. We're saved and or cleansed by the blood. And there's power in the blood. In the life of Jesus. Right, and so the blood is a metaphor. There's no power in the red corpuscles of Jesus. If you actually could get a vial of his red corpuscles, I'll tell you, you, you would be a very powerful person on earth if you could validate it. <laughs> you, 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 imagine the power you could hold over people if you actually could validate you had a, one vial of his real blood. You might become Pope. <laughs> because of the superstitious nature attached to the blood. And we teach this in our, in our that we're cleansed by the blood, washed in the blood. The blood is applied to the right. Blood is a metaphor. And, and depending on which law model you hold, it's interpreted in different ways. In the truth, we go with the Bible, Leviticus 17. The life is in the blood. And thus, the blood of Jesus is symbolic of his sinless, righteous, perfect, holy life that when we partake of the flesh, which is the word, the word became flesh, that's the truth, which destroys the lies and wins us to trust, we open the heart and we receive the life of Jesus. We get a new heart and right spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We're reborn. 
we have a new motives. The life of Jesus infuses us through the Holy Spirit and we live Christ-like lives. That's the truth because the life is in the blood. But when you hold the imposed law model, and this is, I've talked to multiple theologians, they all teach this. No, the blood symbolizes the death, not the life. The death that was paid, that he gave his life at the cross, and the symbolic blood is the death penalty that is applied to your account in heaven to pay for your sins. So we have a version the life is in the blood and we receive the life of Christ, the death is in the blood and you receive the death of Christ. Paid to your account, of course, so that you can have life. Understand, they're not the same. So, let's go to the second request. Move off the superstition. The second request from Naaman was that he would not be looked down upon or held accountable for bowing down to Rimmon because he doesn't really believe in Rimmon. He believes in Yahweh, but he's doing this just to support his king and not get into conflict. Do you know who Rimmon was though? I looked this up because I wasn't familiar with the name Rimmon. Rimmon was another name for Baal. It was just another name for Baal. And remember who Baal was. Baal was the son, Baal was the God who was the son of El, E-L, as in Elohim, El Shaddai. Baal was his son. Baal was the God of weather, thunder, lightning, rain, harvest, brought the harvest. Baal was the God who fought against the great serpent, the great Leviathan, and he also fought against the God of death, Mote. And in his battle with Mote, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. Now, what is wrong with worshiping God the Son, who is the creator and brings life, who fights the great serpent, who fights against death, who dies on our behalf and rises again to bring life to the land? You wouldn't worship a God like that, would you? What's wrong with that God? You see, Satan's counterfeits are always very close approximations to the truth. The true counterfeits get very close. Baal required sacrifice from the worshiper, offerings brought in order to get the blessing from the God. You had to come with the sacrifice. So you see on Mount Carmel, all the blood and things, as was their custom, sacrificing to get the offering. You had to pay him. This is pagan worship. And Baal, of course, became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to all the Christians who worship a god who must be paid by the blood of a human sacrifice not to punish you. This is modern Baal worship that most of Christianity teaches and why the prophet Malachi said before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the second coming, the prophet Elijah must come again and turn the hearts of the fathers back to the son. We must free people from this message of, a, of imperial authority back to love for God and love for each other, which is the design law truth about who God is. Now, the big question, do we today want to act the part of Naaman and say to God, I believe in you, creator God, I know you are not like Baal, but let me like Naaman, let me be like Naaman. Let me quietly bow down in my church where they present Baal in your place, where the people are worshiping a God of thunder, a God of wrath, a God that requires the blood payment of Jesus be presented in order for that God not to harm them. You know, I don't believe it, but forgive my compliance with the religious edicts coming from my church authority as I bow down 
for I might be called to account by my church board. I might be disfellowshipped. I might lose my job, for like Naaman, I also work for an employer who worships Baal. I see some somber faces in here. At this time in history, are we okay to take the position of Naaman? In our heart, be true to Yahweh, but in our behaviors, continue to stand, to bow to Baal rather than standing for Yahweh. Isn't he calling? What is the message for us today? An angel, the first angel, came with the eternal gospel, the eternal good news about God, and said, be in awe of God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come. It's time for people to stand up and glorify the truth, the true God of heaven, so that the other people who ignorantly are worshiping the, the, the characterization, the close approximation, the close false fantasy version of God can have an, a real choice and can say, wow, I never knew God was like that. I always thought he was like this. They, they need to be shown the difference. And, it's, and he's calling for a people, a people to stand up and say, no, God is not like Satan is represented to be. And the root issue question is, how do you understand God's law functions. And if you conclude it functions like human law, you will always conclude that God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering, a God that requires payment, the payment of a sinless human blood sacrifice be made to him. That's Baal worship. Yes? To go back to when you were talking about the child and the medical record, if we can go to your original uh, in one of your presentations about what that is, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And that love and trust is what is being restored. If we keep looking at we have to get right in order to be presentable to God, it puts the focus on us and our capabilities and leaves God out of that equation, which is missing the boat, and Satan has duped this for so long. If we come to him as is, with our medical record as is, and help to get that lie clarified, God is not the God that inflicts suffering, but God is the God who loves you this moment as you are. And he is the source of the healing power and therefore let his love fill you up. And that gives you the ability to then function out of love and your life changes. And those things are restored in you, his love. That's where that power is. And we miss it if we're in this legal penal model well, Cindy, that's well said, and, and I agree with everything you said, and hopefully, as you all listen to that, you were having the two descriptions drop right down, and you could see the direct linkages, connections, and outgrowth from the two laws. If you have the human law model, and we'll, and we'll, we'll give this example. Someone, is, and I use, use this example in one of my programs. Someone is using illegal IV drugs, if they're using illegal IV drugs, they're breaking the laws of men and they're breaking the laws of health, which are the design laws. They're breaking both types, right? You can see that. Does the person who's using illegal IV drugs, and because they're using illegal IV drugs with dirty needles, they eventually end up with endocarditis, an infection inside their heart, a heart infection, metaphor for sin. Our hearts are corrupt and infected with sin now, so metaphor. 
Now, they've, they've been breaking both laws. Does the person who has been using the illegal drugs want to be called in before the magistrate and have the record of all their bad deeds presented to the judge and be judged by him? Do they want to go there? No. And if they had to go there and they had a period of time, would they want to clean themselves up first, get into rehab, uh, get into some good works program, help other people, show that they have gotten their life together before they go to the judge? Would they want to do that? This is what she's talking about. And now it became about the externals, not the state of the heart. That's right. But the same person who's got endocarditis, breaking the laws of men and the laws of health, they're sick, they're feverish, they're throwing little, uh, little bits of bacteria off, causing little microstrokes and other things going on. They're, 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 they know there's something. Do they want to actually go before the doctor and have the doctor examine them? And the doctor will examine them way deeper than just behaviors. They'll do an echocardiogram, an MRI. They'll look at the deep inner secret recesses that David prayed. Search me and see the wicked way in me, O God, and then create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. See, when you understand design law and you understand that breaking God's laws are damaging and destructive to you, you and you get that and you finally are convicted because you've looked in the mirror of the law and you see how sick we are, then and you see how good God is, then you want to go to him and ask him to search and find every broken, sick thing within you because the doctor will heal you. And that's the difference between what you're describing, between the design law view of things and the imperial human perversion of things. And we we got through Monday's lesson, so we're going to close our prayer. (laughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much how you've created your universe to run, how good you are, how trustworthy you are, how full of love you are for all of us. We ask that your spirit will not only enlighten our minds, win us to trust, but fully transform our hearts, sealing and settling us into your kingdom of truth, love, and freedom, that we can bring glory to you at this time in history and how we live our lives and, and reveal the truth of your character to others. Because the hour has come, Lord. It's time for the church and the world to wake up and make a right judgment about you and stop painting you as this false imperial dictator, Baal, pagan concept and start worshiping you in the glory of your true creatorship. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.